Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Oxman, and you're listening to the Transaction Trending Podcast from the Electronic Transactions Association. Thanks for listening. 2018 will be remembered as an electrifying year in payments technology. High-profile mergers and acquisitions totaling over $40 billion, a rapidly changing sales channel, and the proliferation of new payment solutions. All of these have made 2018 one of the most innovative years in our industry's history. The end of the year also marks the end of our first year of podcasting at ETA. We've featured a myriad of voices on the Transaction Trending podcast. 22 leaders from across the payments ecosystem have joined us on the show, including the CEO of the world's largest payments processor, startup entrepreneurs in the ISV, PayFAC, and FinTech spaces, payment security professionals, sales channel experts, industry analysts, bankers, policy advocates, and retailers. All of their perspectives point to one of the most important trends defining our industry, the techification of payments. It's easy to wax poetic about Silicon Valley giants, mobile wallets, and smartphones, but the effect of these new technologies is tangible. Software and hardware revolutions, whether from technology companies, payments processors, or fintech startups, have evolved payments from a single product, plastic cards with magnetic stripes, to an innovative revolution. In August of this year, we aired an interview with Rushi Patel, the co-founder of Homebase. Homebase is a software provider that builds employee time management and HR solutions that integrate directly into smart point-of-sale devices. Rushi gave us some great insight into how these types of software-powered services are changing how payments companies approach merchants. Here's an excerpt from that conversation from ETA's Transact Tech Atlanta event. Let's start off uh, talking about Homebase, uh, the product suite, the services. Uh, tell us about Homebase, and then let's talk about Homebase's connection to payments technology. Sure. So we built Homebase to make it easier for both employers and employees to manage their work. You know, we do this by providing solutions when it comes to hiring, time tracking, scheduling, and team communications. You know, and the payment ecosystem has actually been quite successful at introducing technology to the merchant countertops. And the modern solutions that are out there today help give companies like Homebase the ability to enhance the offerings that the payment providers have. So let's talk about that in a little bit of detail. Sure. You have uh, quite a few big name companies in payments as partners uh, for Homebase, Square, Clover, Point, Tolic, just to name a few. So talk us through specifically how the Homebase solution fits in with a, an offering from one of these companies to their merchant customers. Yeah, it may, be, it may seem odd to think about how is payments connecting with uh, you know, HR-like software or things that help with uh, employee management. But what it does is what the payments companies have access to is uh, you know, important sales data. They know what's going on from a revenue perspective at the business. And we're able to couple that information to help local businesses better forecast their own needs, whether it comes to sales, because we can take their sales data and say, here's what your projected sales are going to be for next week or the week after, based off of your prior Wednesdays that you've had, coupled with, here's what your labor profile tends to look like on Wednesdays. So how do you build a smarter schedule? How do you build something that's more efficient? And how can you help uh, stay more profitable? And with our software solution, we help merchants kind of see the payments piece and the labor piece in one place to help them stay more profitable. So 
Did you ever think about becoming a payments company uh, yourself, or is that still something that you think about? Uh, you're not currently operating under that model. Is that something you have thought about or are thinking about? Yeah, I think it's. if I say we thought about it, it's probably very briefly we thought about it, uh, only because, again, we work in partnership with, uh, with payment processors and large acquirers, and we think that building a relationship of trust there means that we we focus on what our goal is and we let them focus on what their goal is. We think we can equip acquirers with relevant tools and services that allow them to better and further solidify the relationship they have with their merchants. And then so long as we do our job, which is to remain uh, providing solutions to make it easier to work, uh, we can focus on the employee side and the employer management side of running a business and let the uh, acquiring partner focus on the uh, payment side of the business. Uh, so I'd say what we're seeing in the ecosystem today is folks are taking different approaches to solving what they are also hearing as a problem, right? They're hearing that labor management is a problem. They're hearing that I need my partner to be a solutions provider, not just for payments, but I need them to help me run my business. And so what else can you give me in your uh, toolkit? Like what else do you have in your sales bag there that's going to help me run my business? And so uh, you know, we've seen partners that have... Uh, try to build this out on their own, and then they actually get some success with it. And when you have success with it, what that means is, is merchants will ask you for more and more things. And then all of a sudden, it becomes perhaps a different priority shift for that partner versus maybe their core fundamental business strategy. And then we can come in and help them with that because you know, we stay razor sharp focused on one thing. The partnerships you've struck thus far um, with the, the major payments companies uh, to embed your software solutions, if you will, on, uh, on these hardware terminals. Are, are there more out there that you're not on, that you want to be on? Is, it, is that kind of uh, part of your focus is making sure that home base is available to every merchant on every device that they could put on their counter? Yeah, I think our goal is, one, just have awareness that there are solutions out there for a small business that they can actually uh, use to better run their business. Early when we started building home base, many of Many folks tell us, well, we're not, you know, as retailers tell us, well, we're not Target. We can't afford technology that helps with scheduling or time tracking, or we're not Starbucks. Right? We're just a small coffee store in the corner here. We can't afford these types of things. And so I think what we want to just do is make sure folks know that there is accessible technology out there. There's accessible platforms out there that the payments providers now offer, and you can use solutions like Homebase uh, to help you better run your business. Sophisticated software solutions, driven to market by forward-thinking acquirers, processors, and ISOs, save merchants substantial time and money. These new technology solutions have also inspired a wave of industry partnerships and acquisitions, over 100 deals totaling $40 billion in 2018. At Transact this year, I caught up with another co-founder whose company is emblematic of the disruption and innovation shaping payments technology. Rich Aberman is co-founder of WePay. Rich shared with me the story of WePay from its early days as a Silicon Valley startup to its $220 million acquisition by J.P. Morgan Chase. In this excerpt from our interview, Rich explains how Repay read the market adapted its strategy, and tapped into the growing software marketplace among SMBs to build an elegant, disruptive, and valuable payments product. The acquisition by J.P. Morgan Chase. So take us through the building of the business from those early funding days 
to the point where you and your fellow co-founders decided, you know what, it's time to start thinking about the next chapter, and then JP Morgan Chase comes knocking. Sure, so the first major point of inflection, which was before the acquisition, was when we decided to retire our direct business, where we were selling basically merchant accounts to small, micro, non-traditional merchants with our own tools and capabilities built on top of that. Event management, invoicing, shopping cart functionality, virtual terminal. When we decided to deprecate that, which at that point we had raised $30 million to build, is what our brand name was about, our organizational structure was around, our org structure was optimized to serve, but really was a business that was not highly leveraged uh, and wasn't disruptive and was no path to kind of doing something exciting and transformative to, for the industry, but it was over 60% of our revenue at the time. When we deprecated that and went all in on our API kind of integrated channel strategy, where we said, look, what's happening is more and more small businesses are using SaaS or cloud software to grow and manage their operations more effectively. There's an explosion of third-party solutions out there for a variety of different merchant verticals. Why don't we let them do what they do best let them build the experience, let them build the functionality for specific types of, of merchants, and we'll just make the payment experience really, really elegantly integrated into, into those value-add solutions. It was that decision in mid-2014, you know, some six years after we founded the business, that really led to the growth that eventually J.P. Morgan Chase saw and, and decided to acquire. Software companies like Homebase and WePay have been at the heart of the techification of payments. And their work has shaped traditional business models, bringing change to the sales channel. An early adopter of a sophisticated software-driven business model is Kyan. Kyan took a new approach to marketing and selling payment solutions to SMB owners, focusing on powerful software suites and convenience. It culminated in a portfolio of over 70,000 merchants and a successful acquisition of Kyan by Tesis in 2017. After that acquisition closed, I talked to Henry Helgeson, the founder of Cayenne. Henry explained how traditional sales tactics were not the way forward for his payments technology company. Um, well, it, it was an interesting journey over 20 years there. Uh, we started out selling terminals online back when it was really mostly feet-on-the-street sales. And really, over the years, we, we saw an opportunity there that the credit card terminals were, were going the way of the dinosaurs and the payphones, that everybody was moving to integrated point of sale. And uh, for a few years, we were trying to figure out how to get into it. Uh, and really, finally, just in 2004, 2005, uh, decided to plant the flag and go for it, uh, acknowledging that we didn't know anything about what we were doing, uh, hired a few developers, and really just committed around it to, to learn that part of the industry and be good at it. When we first started out, we thought our value prop was, or value prop to the merchant, was that we were cheaper. And part of that was true. That was certainly the attraction. But we learned over time that it was really convenient, that, that nobody wanted to deal with me and their restaurant making them fill out paperwork. And I think the industry has caught on to that. And when you see the likes of Square out there, uh, and even what we're doing at Cayenne, we really just make it very convenient for merchants who are very busy uh, to sign up for credit card processing. And, uh, you know, we do, uh, the tools have evolved, but the concepts have pretty much remained the same since 98. 
and that brings us to the new sales channel and these new entrants like ISVs and VARs, payment facilitators, and more. Uh, you know, the ISO channel 20 years ago was very simple. It was an ISO selling card acceptance services, as you uh, mentioned. Today, of course, you've got a lot of new entrants. Um, even ISOs are referring to themselves as ISVs or payment facilitators today. What would you say is kind of the, the biggest uh, adaption uh, you've had to make uh, in Cayenne's business in response to this new entry by software service providers, by payment facilitators, technology companies coming into the business? Yeah, it's really been a big evolution for us, um, where we moved from strictly a sales and marketing organization back in 98, all the way up through maybe 2005, uh, to really a, a technology and product company. And a lot of companies try to do this, um, but it's it's not a veneer on a sales and marketing company. It is changing the DNA of an organization. And really, the allocation of capital has to move towards product people, technology people, and just all of the resources that support that. The organization really had to change from uh, being, I'd say at the time, 80% of headcount was related to sales, to now it's probably Probably only 30%, with uh, you know 40 or so percent being dedicated to technology and product. Uh, the rest being supporting cast and marketing um, and service. So when you launched the Genius platform, uh, I remember uh, you were one of the first ISOs really to bring on the engineering capability in-house, uh, both here in the U.S. And, and, and outside the U.S. What was that process like uh, changing from being that, that sales-focused ISO to being a technology company? Well, fortunately for us, I made a huge miscalculation in just how much this would take. Um, we really thought it would be a lot simpler, and we underestimated the the commitment it would take and the dollars it would take to build out an organization to, to really scale up for, for what the vision was. Um, so as we started to build a technology organization, it, it occurred to us, and we, we saw very quickly, that we, we would need a lot more capital invested in this uh, than we originally thought. Thought. So for for some time there, we uh, well at some point we were we were so far committed already we had to keep going, uh, and fortunately for us the product had legs and it showed some traction. But I think if you had told me in 2012 when we started to build Genius that I would need 150 people to do it in two countries, uh, you know, 70% of our development footprint now is in our office in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, had I known the actual dollar commitment, I might not have made the decision to do it. Um, if it, it to us, it looked like a 15 to 25 person project, um, not a 150 person project. And uh, fortunately, we made that miscalculation, underestimated and, and committed, <laughs> and uh, it worked out. We were also lucky this year to feature some perspectives on the techification of payments from outside of ETA's membership. I'd like to highlight the insights we heard from Emi Yoshikawa, Director of Joint Venture Partnerships at Ripple. Emi is an expert in the use of distributed ledger technology by financial institutions. She gave us her perspective on blockchain use cases that payments technology executives should know. There is obviously a lot of hype and a lot of talk about blockchain and cryptocurrency and distributed ledger technology. So let's start with this. Help us uh, and our listeners understand, is there such a thing as the blockchain 
Or is it better for us to say there are blockchains? Uh, tell us at the start what we're talking about. Yeah, so that's a great question. So in a nutshell, uh, Bitcoin or blockchain technology is basically a distributed uh, network of the servers uh, that confirm transactions. Uh, and uh, what's really innovative about this is that previously there was always a centralized uh, Trans, uh, party who confirms uh, transactions. But what blockchain really enabled is that the ability to confirm transactions in a decentralized fashion. Uh, the blockchain industry was basically created back in 2008 when Bitcoin was initially introduced. And back then, Bitcoin was the only blockchain. Uh, and people thought that Bitcoin could kind of address many any kind of problems uh, about finance. But quickly, people started to realize that in order to address different kind of problems, you need a different kind of design. So over the past 10 years, uh, different types of blockchain have emerged. Uh, Ripple is one of them. And we are specifically focused on solving payments problems. And uh, our solution really are specialized in, uh, the, in solving payments problems, particularly for uh, financial institutions. So we, we know that banks around the world are literally moving trillions of dollars between and among uh, fellow banks uh, over the course of a day. Is the cross-border issue in particular for banks one that you've been uh, having some success in solving for uh, for banks using blockchain technology? Yes, absolutely. And we believe uh, remittance and particularly like low-value payment is uh, the area where we can make the biggest difference uh, at this moment. And this uh, projects uh, between Japan and Thailand, uh, specifically between SBI Remit, which is the largest uh, remittance company in Japan, and uh, Siam Commercial Bank, it's a prominent bank in Thailand. This is uh, one of the first uh, kind of projects that I was involved in. I'm very passionate about this because I'm coming from Japan. And in Japan, uh, there are many migrant workers working at factories and doing childcare. Uh, many of them are coming from Asia. And they have the need to send money back home to support their families uh, in their home countries. But until recently, uh, if they wanted to send money, they had to go to banks, and usually this payment takes several days to settle, and also it's very expensive. They have to pay 30 to $40, which is a, a significant amount of money for their family back home. And also, the payment often fails. Uh, today, the error rate of the SWIFT message system uh, is uh, said to be around 6 to 7%. Uh, this that money sent by the migrant workers back home is really lifeline for family back home. So if the payments fail, then that's a that's a you know huge problem. So what we are doing with our technology is much faster and it's, uh, payments and with a lower cost with a much higher certainty for the settlement. So actually our customers, uh, our financial institutions, and also their end customers are very, very happy with the service. And since we uh, partnered with these financial institutions and introduced these new payment services, the payments volume actually increased 3x over the past, uh, the first three months. So this means it's really win-win-win situation. Uh, it's good for financial institutions and also end customers. And even though the payments cost and fees can be lower, because the payments volume increased significantly, so it's uh, basically overall uh, the, our customers were able to increase their business significantly. 
Well, that's very interesting because what what it sounds like you're talking about is not introducing a new service uh, for consumers to use to to transmit money across borders. You're not introducing new remittance services. You're making it less expensive for existing financial institutions uh, to allow their customers to make those cross-border remittances. Is that is that a fair way to describe it? Yes, that's right. We also spoke to Reed Lutanen, who's Senior Director of Global Treasury at Walmart. Reed is one of Walmart's top payments experts, and he gave us the world's largest retailer's perspective on how omni-channel payments, powered by mobile technology, are an important part of Walmart's customer experience. Absolutely. I think it's easy for folks like uh, you or me who are wrapped up in payments all the time to really dig in and think about payments as an experience unto itself. But I don't think that's how the average customer thinks about it. People don't walk into our stores thinking, I'm going to pay for something, right? They walk into the store thinking they've got a, they've got something they need to do to go about their life. They need to buy their groceries or they need to replace you know, an appliance that isn't working or something along those lines. And so the, the payment, of course, like you said, is an important part of that experience because it's a necessary conclusion to a, to a shopping journey. Um, but it's not in and of itself an experience the customer is looking for. So what we try to do is we try to think generally about what are the experiences we're trying to create for our customers holistically? What do we want them to experience when they go to a Walmart store or when they go to Bonobos or when they're going to use Voodoo to watch a movie? And then um, how does payments play into that experience? How can we sort of make the make the experience better for the customer without getting payments in the way of the experience? One experience I, I had recently at one of our stores that I'd like to talk through here is purchasing a movie. So I bought a movie at Walmart using Walmart Pay and went through the experience of walking through the store, selecting the movie I wanted to buy, taking it to the checkout and using my phone to, to make the payment. And we're going to talk about Walmart pay quite a bit later, I think. Um, but then as I was walking out of the store, I got a notification on my phone that the digital copy of that movie was already provisioned into my Voodoo account. And that's the sort of thing that the fact that I paid with Walmart pay allowed that sort of further enhanced experience to happen where I didn't have to do anything now to get that movie to be available to me. As soon as I walked into the door of my house or frankly, if I was interested in it, I could have just streamed it right to my phone right then. Um, so like I said before, it's not about thinking about the payments experience. It's about thinking about how we can use payments to enrich the other experiences that customers are having in our ecosystem. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the process that led to those particular implementations and uh, how you went about deciding um, what solutions to deploy and even to deploy a, a mobile payment solution for your customers of Sam's Club and Walmart? Yeah, sure. Happy to talk about that. Walmart Pay um, has been a tremendous success. And Walmart kind of went about that. We know that our customers want to save not just money, but also time. And so that was kind of the frame that we were looking through when we decided to come up with Walmart Pay. Um, we wanted a safe, easy, and convenient way for our customers to pay with their smartphones in our stores. Uh, and it's, it's it, like I said, it's been wildly successful. We've grown to the number one mobile wallet solution, according to payments.com and InfoScout. And as of February of this year, 25% of adult smartphone users have set up and used Walmart Pay. And now, like I mentioned before, Walmart Pay wasn't developed simply for the sake of payments. 
we look at it as a foundational platform to help create that more seamless shopping experience I talked about before with the Voodoo example. Um, looking for ways toward the future to help customers um, save their new form of currency, which is time. And it's interesting. When we set out on that, we imagined that the early adopters would be middle-income millennial males. Instead, the data that we've seen um, shows that it's actually been more of a hit with Gen X and Boomer females. Uh, you know, but that makes sense if you think about it, because those folks are the ones who are running their households. They're busy looking for every way they can to add an extra second and less hassle and stress to their day. So the fact that they can use the Walmart Pay app or the Scan and Go app um, to help expedite their shopping journey, help them keep their receipts organized, help them, you know, navigate the different parts of the Walmart ecosystem, be it prescriptions or returns, or like I said before, voodoo movies. Um, that's all extremely valuable to, to our customers. And it shows because 88% of our transactions on Walmart pay come from repeat users. So people who use it really do like it. And it's the same story with Scan and Go, which of course is a slightly different implementation in Walmart Pay. It actually allows our customers, or in this case, the Sam's Club members, to scan the UPCs on the items as they're going through the store. And then when they're finished with um, with their shop, they can just walk right out the door as though they've checked out because it's all on the app. Um, it's an extremely uh, seamless experience for the customer. And it actually, um, in addition to skipping the line, it allows them to track what they're spending as they travel through the club. So they know as they're building their basket what their total is going to be. And so if, for a price-conscious family shopping at Sam's Club, that can be extremely useful as well. The techification of payments is not without its own challenges for payments technology companies. When I spoke with Kim Crawford Goodman, president of card services at Fiserv at ETA's SLF event this year, she highlighted the challenges that this digital transformation poses for payments technology leaders. It's a thoughtful conclusion to a truly remarkable year of payments growth and innovation. I want to leave with a question that kind of ties together two major themes that you speak about frequently, and that is leadership. Um, in your role, uh, and also the fintech space. Um, I'm curious what you think about are the biggest challenges that the payments technology industry faces and how payments leaders like yourself should be facing those challenges, taking them on head on, if you will. Yeah, I think I would say three things. First and foremost, you know, there is a both an opportunity and a challenge for fintech leaders and businesses as it relates to all the proliferation. Um, you know, I just gave in, a, the, in my speech the example of, let me show you the four accounts my father has, who's 83 years old, and then let me show you the 15 accounts that my nephew has, who's 31 years old. So that's massive proliferation, which is exciting because new business models will be created, new companies and capability and institutions will be created, but it's also a challenge because at the end of the day, I don't know that my nephew has that much more money <laughs> than, than my dad does, and I don't know that he does that many more transactions, but his ability to access paying from different accounts and payment mechanisms is just is massive, and that's just what he does. If I, if I were to line up, you know, five 31-year-olds, we'd probably end up with 50 different types of accounts that they have. So managing through this proliferation to make sure you understand it, that you take advantage of it, 
that you either add to it or add some consolidation where appropriate, I think, is a critical focus of um, fintechs. And I could make the same example on the acquiring side, that the options that merchants have for being able to accept payments is also proliferating. And so this is true no matter where you play in this three, four, five, you know, 100-party system that we live in. Um, I would say the crucial advice I give is as things are proliferating, what you want to be sure of is you're with the right, you access the right underlying network and you access the right underlying technology partner. And we are, we are fast moving out of the world where there's really only kind of, you know, two or three big ubiquitous worldwide networks. We're fast moving into the world where there are multiple network options for connectivity between the issuing side and the acquiring side. And people need to be thoughtful about that. They need to be aggressive in their thinking. They need to partner with aggressive companies that will make those capabilities available to them. A perfect example is what I just talked about in Zell. I mean, we have P2P networks at Fiserv. We have um, ACH networks, we have debit networks, but it still didn't stop us from being a major partner with Zelle and a major implementer of Zelle. So proliferation is real, and making sure you're tapping the right underlying tech and network players, I think, uh, is great advice. The second thing that, of course, has to be tackled is security. Um, we, it goes without saying that security has always, has always been a challenge, and the challenge is getting more global, faster, and deeper as it relates to how much of a threat it is. And again, the best advice I can give is be sure you're, tech, you're partnered with the right technology company. I, I, I you know, worry for fintechs and financial institutions who are trying to chase all of these new technologies and keep up with them. You want to be partnered with a company like Fiserv, as an example, who's capable in risk mitigation uh, abilities across the entire landscape, whether you're a financial institution, a card, process, a card account holder, et cetera, and we deploy those on your behalf. And the third thing I would say, uh, you know, fintech leaders need to be thoughtful about is just as so many shifts are happening, it's logical that the business models are shifting. And what we thought were really distinct services in the past may no longer be distinct services because they will be absorbed in other things. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I, uh, you know, I think when you look at kind of the merchant side of the business as an example, um, I haven't, I'm now more on the issuing side of the business, but what I've talked to with ETA before, what I've seen not just, you know, now, but in my days at American Express and otherwise, the number of technology software providers that are incorporating payments and what they do is, it's un, you can't even count it. I bet ETA can't even count it. There's so, I mean, there's got to be so many new ones every single day. And I don't, you know, none of us knows what will win or lose in this battle over time, but there will be model shifts. So the, you know, the way we used to do business, for example, in acquiring where there's a standalone terminal sitting on someone's counter, you put a physical plastic card in it. It's not clear that that business model, right, that business, how long that business model will even continue as it is because that functionality can be absorbed in others. So as a leader, you've got to understand what your functionality is, how you complement it over time, what others are doing, and make sure that 
your distinct value is great enough that it actually can sustain. Always so thoughtful and great advice for leaders in the industry and a great way to connect together the changes in technology and the challenges for leaders across the payments industry. Kim Crawford Goodman is president of Card Services for Fiserv. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure as always. Thank you for making Transaction Trending your source of information and analysis in payments technology. Here's looking forward to 2019 and another great year in our innovating and exciting industry. For the Electronic Transactions Association, I'm Jason Oxman. This has been Transaction Trending, a podcast powered by the Electronic Transactions Association. ETA is the leading trade association for the payments industry, representing over 500 payments technology companies worldwide. This episode was produced by Laura Hubbard and Patrick Nolan. It was recorded, edited, and mixed by Patrick Nolan. For more information on the Electronic Transactions Association, visit electran.org.